If you're allowing the non-beneficial detrimental elements to combine with your steel, then over time, you, you could risk those elements just increasing in volume within that steel component. There may need to be a fundamental change in the way those scrap merchants operate, and that might be different technologies. It might be operating their current equipment slightly differently. But at the moment, scrap suppliers are working to the specification that's been in place for many years. And it's probably just not quite fit for purpose for what's required now because we are moving into a much more circular economy instead of that linear throwaway economy. It's not about supporting the manufacturers at the expense of anybody else within that supply chain. It's about making sure the circular economy is implemented with all those organisations within a supply chain. The end of season two... Pete's decided this. I we, have, don't, yeah. we don't discuss things like this. We don't do the minutes or anything like that. It's all, all bespoke. Well, 10 episodes, that's what we said. This is the 10th. Yeah, never one one up. Eight. Because <laughs> it's 10. <laughs> oh, fair enough. So this is the end of season two. Um, just done our podcast with iSpace. Yeah, just a, with Cathy. With yeah, Cathy. second time we've done it. So apologies about the uh, original issues Kathy but I think we did a better podcast I think second time round going up to Sheffield I think all of us did a better job and I think the project was further along so if anything I think I did everyone a favour but I think you did Peter yeah yeah I think you did I think you did do us all a favour what did you think of the pod thinking back because it's only a few few weeks back now that this was recorded yeah I, I think kind of always speaking to like manufacturers you know or, or people who've been in the manufacturing side it's just obviously sustainability and what they're trying to achieve you know through recycling of metals it becomes more apparent doesn't it i think when you're in stock holding you just it's just the scrap bin it's three or four three one six or whatever or if you're in steel it's whatever it needs to be so i think it's more important about how they're educating the kind of oems and about but basically they've got you've got a responsibility to ensure that when your product comes to end of life there's a recyclable side to it yeah, it's, and, and we, we saw it when we were at the UK Metals Expo. One of the theatres there was just specific about circularity. I was out the other week, plastics company. It's the same thing. They're talking about the same issues. I'm sure it's the same in concrete, glass, all the primary metals. They're all talking about the same stuff. And I think this kind of hashtag circularity has got so big now that we can't just kind of run away from it like we might have mm. done previously. I think you said at the time, didn't you? You know, things have always kind of been recycled because it was easy to recycle a component when you're just cutting a bit of bar or something like that. The bit that you don't use drops in the bin and you get some money back. But I think people who are manufacturing goods, that's where the issue comes in. And speaking to Richard Curry when we did the, the Sustain podcast, you know, he spoke a lot about it and Kathy a little bit further. So it'll be interesting to see how her bid to government goes if they get the funding um, and if the funding's there where they build this pilot plant because that's pretty much what they're trying to trying to achieve yeah fingers crossed enjoy the pod enjoy hey guys peter mike and the metal guys well we're um we're back with Kathy, today we we recorded a podcast with you a little while back. It was earlier in the year. Had a slight problem with it, so we're we're re-recording it today. I'm sure we will do a better job this time. Kathy is the project manager at iSpace. Rather than me guess 
what iSpace is or give my spin on it. Could you just give us a little bit of an idea for the listeners of what iSpace is um, and how you became involved with it? Okay, so I'm managing a very small project where we're trying to pull together information so that we can put a business case together and request funding for an industrial scale waste recycling or material recovery pilot plants. Okay, very good elevator pitch there. <laughs> um, what was your background though? If we just roll back, can we just get a little bit of little bit of background from where you've come from and how you kind of got in the industry to where you now are? So by training, I'm a product development metallurgist and I worked with a steelmaker for just over 30 years. So my personal history is that I was a technician, went through part-time study to get my degree, became the product development metallurgist. I've been lucky enough to spend time out on plant as a quality manager. So that's the quality assurance and quality um, check side of the production of the material. I've worked as a customer technical account holder so that means I've been the customer facing person on a technical side and you work in partnership with your commercial account holders. I've also done a little bit of quality assurance and then I left the steelmakers as a department manager. I managed the product development team so you can say really that I started on the bottom ranks and worked my way up. So how did the iSpace project start prior to you getting involved with it and then why did you decide to take the leap after 30 years in industry you've been effectively with one company through different iterations over that time why did you decide now is the time to have a go at this project well it's the iSpace project itself the idea is my colleague's idea it's Richard Curry he works at Swansea University with colleagues who are working in the circular economy um, area and looking specifically at material recovery to support net zero carbon emissions and we can go a little bit further into the project later on in terms of why I took the leap there's a very strong link with my skill set with respect to metallurgy so my experience as a product development metallurgist working with customers and knowing what customers want is useful when you're actually going to the other end of the scale and you actually start with the steel making side of things because if you want to deliver customer requirements you have to make sure that you've got your right raw materials you process it in the right way and you're delivering that customer specified requirement so even though the project is about material recovery raw materials for steel making you have to know that that raw material is suitable for the product that the customer wants so my experience of working with customers is where I fit into the project the other reason that I decided to take the leap is because I just wanted a different challenge and I also all the way through my working life I've worked on little discrete projects or little discrete activities and over the years developed product project management skills, had the opportunity to work with a business who had quite rigorous systems and processes around that. So I have experience of managing projects, but also managing programs, several projects. So project managing the iSpace activity was a natural step for me. If we just jump in a little bit with what you said there about your experience front end because effectively you're now working back ends you're at the end of life cycle of uh, life cycle of products so the project for iSpace from when we spoke last time we, we chatted on the phone effectively you're looking to build a recycling or a state-of-the-art recycling plant so that we're not losing as 
the circular economy, which has got really big, you know, hot topic at the UK Metal Expo the other week. And Richard Curry has been banging on about this to me for two years since I met him. It seems to me, and this is just my thoughts, that it seems a bit arse about face. It's almost like we're going to the end of the life cycle to work out what we should be doing at the start. Is that the right way of, of looking at this, in your opinion? Yes, it is. Um, to unpick it a little bit, at the moment, a lot of products have a finite life and they either fail and therefore would need repair in order to be useful, or people just get fed up with them and throw them away. So you've got a natural resource there of raw materials. So understanding what people, what customers and users do with those products and why they take the actions that they do, it's very important to understand their behaviours. And actually, a waste recycling plant or a material recovery plant is really key in dealing with that stockpile of raw materials that potentially would just go to landfill if we didn't deal with it. But I think it's fair to say it is a transitional activity because ultimately what you want to do is design for recovery of materials. Now, whether or not that's the reuse, so if somebody's bored with it, give it somebody else to use, or the repair, instead of just saying it's redundant, throw it away, repair it, or if it's dismantle and use materials for something else you know, in future that's where you want to go and if you can't do any of those three reuse repair or remanufacture then recycle at the moment because um, society and uh, manufacturing businesses aren't quite there with respect to reuse repair remanufacture we are really being forced to look at recycle because there is that huge stockpiling theory of raw materials that are not being used. Why do you think that they're not looking at that, you know, those methods? What yeah, the repair, think? reuse, remanufacture. Because it seems to, I'm guessing what you're saying is like, we're just going straight to recycle, aren't we? Yeah, or, or landfill. There's a lot of landfill and recycling now because that's what we have to do because there's that stockpile there. Why are we not looking at reuse, repair, remanufacture? It's a little bit cultural. You know, over the past 10, 20, 30 years, as consumers, we've got in the habit of, oh, it's okay, we'll just buy another one. So maybe 50 years ago, there was very much a, let's use it for as long as we can. Let's repair it. There was some pride in that. But society as a whole and manufacturers have gone down a slightly different path. And we need to bring it back to, let's think about using this product for a little bit longer. Instead of buying the toaster that has an 18-month shelf life and actually has built-in redundancy, why not manufacture something that will last three years? And at the end of that three years, actually, you can take all those raw materials and make another toaster or something else. So I think society as a whole went down the disposable routes for whatever reason. But now we know that you know, there's a finite amount of resource you're living in an environment that we are affecting and influencing significantly. So we need to just change our behaviours. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of manufacturers are doing this in the background, some quietly, some quite prominently, but we just need to do more, better, faster. I was going to say, some we're obviously seeing this in tech, aren't we? Mobile phones is the first thing that comes to mind. If you trade in your old phone, there's a, uh, a financial gain a lot of times. Same with, um, I think, obviously, 
students fresh with weeks coming up, it was kind of tried your old laptop in and you had a certain amount of money given off. So we're obviously seeing it from a tech point of view, but just I presume not from a white products point of view where you get changing your dishwasher or washing machine, fridge, that kind of thing. It's, it's that those products in particular are still a pain to recycle, aren't they? They are. A lot of manufacturers are designing um, recyclability into their products, but whether or not it's economically practical to do that at this point, there is a big debate. And that's why really there's a need for a plant that has industrial scale separation and sorting practices where you can, uh, organisations can come and look at certain aspects of their business. And that might be um, how to very easily extract one or more types of material from a particular end of life component, or it might actually be, we know how to extract that material, but it's contaminated with something and therefore we need to do that process better. Or it might actually be, I want to purchase raw materials that have been recovered from end-of-life components to a customer-specified um, set of criteria. And what we're actually doing at the, at the moment in iSpace is actually stakeholder engagement so that we as a team, the iSpace team, if we are proposing a plant where you can do research on material recovery, we're setting up a plant that can offer products and services appropriate to manufacturers' needs. Because some manufacturers are recovering materials, others are not quite there yet, and some of them are struggling a little bit with the technology that's in place now. And that might be the technical aspects of the technology or even just the economic operational aspects of the technology. Well, look, there's a massive amount to already unpack <laughs> from what you've just kind of said. I've scribbling notes everywhere here. If we can kind of just go in order here, can we talk about contamination? And again, for people listening in, can we first look at why contamination is an issue? Obviously, we understand the word. But let's look at it with regard to metals and, and the products that we're looking to recycle or reuse or repair or manufacture. So can you talk to us about what contamination is and how much of an issue this is for, for what you're trying to do at iSpace? Okay, so if we look at steel, various metals, steel is recycled on a regular basis and in large volumes. But because of the way the end-of-life components are collected, they sometimes get grouped together and recycled together. And so what that might mean is you've got lots of different steels in the same batch. And that's okay for certain steel making manufactured grades, but not for others. So sometimes contamination might be, it's a mixture of metals, a mixture of steel grades, and actually a steel maker wants to refine that and only get three or four different grades instead of several different grades. Another um, aspect of contamination is simply cleanness dirt. You don't really want your steel to be delivered with lots of soil or concrete or plastics or glass because the sorting and separation process sometimes it's quite a large a large scale process and you can when you're moving pieces of steel especially magnetic steel you might trap a piece of plastic between two pieces of steel and that gets dumped in the lorry load and sent off to the steel maker and on the face of it that might not seem like such a big deal but if you've got soil and concrete and glass and plastic mixed in with your steel you don't really want to be putting that back in your steel making vessel so contamination can simply be dirt or other materials that are not wanted 
What would be the um, the main issues for a plant? If we take out, it turns up and it's contaminated with some of those other raw materials, concrete, glass, etc. Yeah, they can get those out. It's another process. It's another cost. It's time. So we don't want that. But if that then goes back into the melt, plastic, say, or less noble materials, what, what are the, the bigger implications? What are the issues for you if you spin yourself back to your, your old job? Uh, I'm not a steelmaker, but obviously I know about steelmaking. So just bear that in mind. But the problem is, if you do put something in the steelmaking vessel that you don't want, you have to, through that steelmaking process, remove it. And most of it would go into the slag and be captured. And on the face of it, again, that might not seem like a big problem, but it could extend operational times, processing times. You will create a lot more slag, which has to be disposed of. Some slags can be reused to make other products. And that's if the steelmaker so wishes to sell that on. But if you're putting dirt in with the steel, you can separate that dirt out and capture it in the slag, but then you've got to deal with the slag. So it's just making another waste product, another byproduct that has to be dealt with. And there are certain elements. If you look at steels in general, copper gets a really bad name. Steelmakers don't want copper in their raw materials mix because the customers don't want copper in their products, in their steel. And copper is something that's very different, difficult to extract during the steelmaking process. So if you're um, taking a, an end-of-life vehicle and separating that into its different materials and you want to extract the steel and then you send a lorry load of steel off to the steel maker and there's a significant amount of copper in there from wires or motors or whatever that copper actually goes into the steel making vessel it will chemically combine with the steel and be very difficult to pull out that's something you can't get into the slag so there are certain things that just go into the slag and therefore you're generating more waste product byproduct that has to be dealt with and there are other things that actually end up in the steel that nobody wants sorry i was just gonna say for anyone who doesn't know slag what is that what you said yeah so what is what's what is that just so it's um it, as you melt steel you will yep. protect the steel with a, a layer of uh, material that prevents oxygen getting to the steel okay yeah. so it's a protective layer it also helps you keep temperature in the steel yeah but it also is a chemical composition that reacts with things that you don't want okay. so we can deoxidize the steel by using something that has a, a lot of propensity to take oxygen out yeah and it's the um, it's the protective layer whereby you can actually attract some of those dirt particles, and you can get the dirt particles, then the non-metallic particles, out of the steel into the slag. So it's basically something that protects the steel from oxygen. It keeps the temperature in, and it helps clean the steel. It helps get rid of all those nasties, those non-metallics, those dirties that you don't want. Brilliant. Thank you very much. This podcast is sponsored by the UK Metals Expo. After the successful launch of this event in 2022, the UK Metals Expo will be back at the NEC in Birmingham on the 13th and 14th of September 2023 
For podcast listeners, you can secure a 20% discount for booking a stand by quoting the Metal Guys Talk Business when speaking to the event organisers about booking. The UK Metals Expo is an industry event connecting the full supply chain from primary metal manufacture through supply chain, processing, fabrication, surface coating and all the way through to recycling. Effectively, as they used to say in the old days, from melt to market. With full endorsement from the UK Metals Council, its trade members and other industry bodies, the show had great initial credentials and has the potential, in my opinion, to become a huge annual event in the UK, drawing exhibitors and attendees from across the UK and further overseas. With free-to-attend seminars taking place inside the show, it's definitely an event not to be missed by anyone with a career in or around the metal industry. We certainly enjoyed it and we look forward to seeing you in 2023. But for now, let's get back to the podcast. I wanted to ask about copper again because we were touching on it at the end of that last question. What are the issues longer term if copper becomes more like less than say a trace element in steels? What what are the kind of the, the bigger issues if we're really looking forward if contamination becomes more and more of a problem with that kind of copper infusion? So with respect to steel, you manufacture to a customer-specified analysis, chemical analysis, so that you can achieve customer-specified mechanical properties, so strength, toughness, for instance. If we don't segregate materials and metals accurately enough, over time, the non-beneficial elements, residuals, trace elements, can increase. So say accidentally you have a large amount of free copper with your iron, you make that steel, it will go into the steel and it will stay there. If you do that several times, as you titled steel components that contain copper, potentially it could go up and up and up. But I have to say copper is not the only one, dependent on the detrimental to the steel in one way or another. So by keeping the non-beneficial elements segregated away from the beneficial elements, you can recycle more often. If you're allowing the non-beneficial detrimental elements to combine with your steel, then over time you you could risk those elements just increasing in volume within that steel component. Okay. We spoke about recycling to a criteria or a specification. So again, because it's further, it's right down at the, the bottom of the, the food chain here. We're at the point where we're breaking those materials back up. Seems to me, I'm just thinking of a scrap metal plant, current scrap metal plant, and they get a bad name. You know, I think they're becoming a lot more professional than maybe they were. But because of the way they look and they seem, I'm guessing that it's quite difficult to bring materials back to, you know, the mill that are hitting a spec or a criteria, particularly if you're looking to try and take out these trace elements, these these issues. How how are you really going to do that? Because at the moment, I'm looking at it and thinking, I just can't fathom how it's possible to, unless unless you've got, say, someone who's just cutting materials, the material comes back, yeah, we've just got the offcuts. That's easy. That's a doddle. But I'm talking about a washing machine, a mobile phone, a laptop. I don't know. Bridges, it could be a plan. Yeah. It, could, it could be anything. How are we going to get this kind of criteria spec quality material back to the mills in in your opinion so at the moment scrap dealers scrap uh, merchants they are working to agreed 
criteria in terms of there is a, uh, a scrap specification but it was generated a long time ago and it was fit for purpose then and things have just naturally moved forward and requirements have changed so there needs to be some work between the customer and it might be an aluminium smelter or a steel manufacturer or a glass manufacturer there needs to be some communication between the, the customer and the raw materials provider the scrap merchants and, and the like and I think that that's happening now and the bit that iSpace and, and the pilot plant will do is assist that conversation because what is required is an agreement between the customer and the supplier with respect to A, what the customer wants and B, what the, the supplier is able to do. And I do know that scrap merchants are looking at their um, separation and sorting activities. There may need to be a fundamental change in the way those scrap merchants operate and that might be different technologies. It might be operating their current equipment slightly differently but at the moment scrap suppliers are working to the specification that's been in place for many years and it's probably just not quite fit for purpose for what's required now because we are moving into a much more circular economy instead of that linear throwaway economy and one of the things that if we move into the circular economy might assist the scrap merchants is if you design for disassembly you design for separation then the scrap merchants will have a better chance of segregating things. Well, it's just easier, isn't it? And I suppose as well, if they're, if they're producing things to criteria, they'll get better money for it. Absolutely, because if you can separate really well and very accurately, potentially you could find more valuable elements that you might be missing now. But also, if you can segregate to a better extent then you can potentially say this is better quality. Now, everybody has to agree what quality is, but you can say that this is better quality and therefore we might be able to charge more for it. And the important thing here is to make sure that nobody's demonised because nobody's actually doing anything wrong. It's a shift across the supply chain. You know, we've already said that I am a product development metallurgist working with customers. You know, I've been brought in because we're trying to look at the supply chain as a whole. It's not about supporting the manufacturers at the expense of anybody else within that supply chain. It's about making sure the circular economy is implemented with all those organisations within the supply chain so that everybody can modify their mode of operandi yeah. to achieve that circular economy at aim. And it's also about making sure that everybody can stay in business because, you know, I worked in a steelmakers, you have to make money. And you shouldn't be making money at the expense of somebody else. Everybody needs to make money for us to have a, um, a healthy economy. We, everybody in the supply chain needs to make money to survive. And it's about making sure that we all across that supply chain, ultimately, and we've talked about the circular economy, but we've not really talked about the ultimate aim, which is about decarbonisation, reducing carbon emissions, getting to net zero. So actually, even though we're talking about the circular economy principles and processes, what we're really driving for is a much healthier environment through decarbonisation and reducing those carbon emissions. Tell you what, mate, with your handwriting, you should have been a doctor. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Sometimes when you just, I'm trying to get it down as fast, that's the, that's the problem. Um, I want to roll back to the iSpace project. Why, why did it happen? Where, where did the kind of the funding come from? And when we last spoke prior to the podcast, 
you were effectively building a case to build the plant. Now we've moved on quite a bit from that page. So um, so where where are we now? How did it start? And how do you feel, or how successful is the job you've done? How, how we close are we getting to, to building this plant in your opinion? Sorry, I did that, I was so bad the way I asked that question, but I think you know what I mean. So, um... In terms of where it started, don't forget I was brought in after the idea yes, of being cast. Yeah. But I, I can tell you that there is um, an EPSRC-funded hub, manufacturing hub, specifically for steel, Sustain. And within that, there are three universities, Swansea University, Warwick University, and Sheffield University, plus all the major steel makers. And that is low TRL, Low Technology Readiness Research, that is um, specifically conducted to support the steelmakers and their supply chain. So there is already a very well-established organisation that's looking at what the steel industry needs going forwards. And through those conversations, it became clear that raw materials is really important. So the idea was probably conceived within that organisation or a similar organisation. With respect to iSpace, we are coming towards the end of our funding period and we've been um, funded by European Regional Development Funds, managed by WEFO, the Welsh European Funding Office. And the business case itself, we are planning in the next month or so to sort of commit pen to paper because what we've been doing is looking at designing a bespoke building based on green principles. So can it generate some of its own electricity, for instance? We're looking at ideal sites and an ideal site is somewhere that is co-located with customers and or suppliers. It's in a region that's appropriate for the activities and it's on a, a site that is also very much interlinked into the circular economy and net zero principles. Alongside that, and probably our biggest activity is stakeholder engagement, because we've been very clear, we're not going to the manufacturing industries telling them what they want. We're not designing the product and process offerings up front. What we've been doing over the past three or four months is actually talking to sector organisations and trade bodies within the manufacturing arena. And we've been asking them, what do the manufacturing industries need? What research and development facilities and programs are required by the manufacturing industries? And I think it's fair to say that we've had a very good reception from steel, aluminium, plastic and glass sector organisations and trade bodies. We've also started talking to the usual government organisations, you know, Innovate UK, the um, Knowledge Transfer Network, Bayes and DEFRA, to understand that if we want to go down this route, is it actually something that everybody requires? And we are receiving letters of support that say, in principle, this is a good idea and is something that manufacturing industry could benefit from. The next phase of that stakeholder engagement is to start and talk to actual individual manufacturers because getting supporting principle is the first step. You need to then go down to the next layer of detail and say specifically for each manufacturing organisation within different material sectors, what would you do with us? What can we do for you? And that's where you actually start and talk about specific research programmes or challenges that need research and development support 
or initiatives that need some sort of knowledge transfer, dissemination, or just access to expertise. This podcast is sponsored by Amron Architectural. Amron Architectural are a company that I've been working with for nearly two years now, and the business has grown rapidly over that time. Um, very experienced staff, uh, very knowledgeable within the architectural interior design space. Um, The ethos of the company is to kind of inspire choice, engage uh, and work with metals and meshes of all different types. They work with classic woven meshes all the way through to bespoke profile cladding panels and uh, you know the experience of the guys there is I would say it's it's right up there in the um, in the UK. They've developed a full range of systems for all aspects of internal and external environments from bespoke ceilings, gantry systems, specialised partitions to large external facade systems and pretty much everything in between. Um, I think the thing that strikes me about these guys is um, they're, they're interested in clients' ideas. They like to talk to clients. They like to know what's happening and develop the systems that fit with the, with the trends but also the design requirements um, of the architects in the industry and the and the clients, so yeah, a company that definitely going places. It's great to have them as a as a sponsor of the podcast. Um, and if you're looking to create those exciting internal and external designs, then um, these are the guys to talk to. Right. Um, so costs and when. That's what I've written down here. How much are we looking at for a project plan, roughly, finger in the wing kind of pricing? And when do you think it will happen? And is it going to happen, in your opinion? I think there's enough momentum behind it to happen. Costs, you're looking at several millions for a building. There'll be several millions to pay for the site. There'll be several millions for the equipment. And to be fair, there'll need to be some funding to support operational costs for the first two, potentially five years. What costs at the moment? We're not there yet. I'm just starting to talk to suppliers about equipment and the building. We've just got our first basic uh, customer spec. So by the time we get to Christmas, we'll have a very skeleton view of a first draft of a business case. Would we be able to chat with you again maybe this time next year so a lot further down the line if you're still working in the same kind of because i think i think it'd be quite because i'm guessing it's going to start speeding up now the process because you've done a lot of the lot of the hard work one of the things we need to do then the next big step is funding how do you fund this because it's several millions you can't really go down the normal government funding route because they tend to be half a million, million, potentially two million, but then you've got to get match funding from industry or some other private venture. So the funding is going to be quite interesting. Do we go down the privately funded route? Will it be a little bit of a partnership, a group of organisations coming together? Will there be some accessing normal, traditional government funds? We genuinely don't know at this point. Um. I'm guessing that this is going to happen because it's it's kind of got to. There's a need for it. I think when we spoke last time, we were looking at the UK almost leading the way on this. Has anyone else been putting these pilot plants in similar to what you're looking to do here in the UK, anywhere else in Europe, so we can kind of use them as an indication of how we might do this and, and the kind of the benefits we'll get quite quickly? 
So this would be a UK facility for UK organisations and those organisations could be academic, research technology organisations, they might be uh, manufacturers or part of the manufacturing supply chain. But it's very clearly a UK facility for UK organisations. Are there other facilities in the world? We don't think so. What I think it will be fair to say is we know it's been done on a small scale by individuals. So you mentioned scrap uh, manufacturers. There will be some waste recycling and waste management organisations that are looking at this on a small scale. And there are obviously manufacturing organisations that are using recycled materials. So it has been done on a small scale. What's unique about this is developing a UK facility for the UK organisations. I also wanted to talk about the natural resources. When we spoke with Richard Curry, he listed and gave us statistics and kind of project, projected statistics about elements that were being put into landfill, effectively. So I guess you'll answer the, the way I'm, I'm kind of throwing the question, but why is it so important that we, we, we stop and we almost go, right, this throwaway society that we're currently got and the cultural shift changes, why do you think it's so important to make sure that we don't lose more of these natural resources quickly? And also, do you think that we can change the culture fast enough to stop the rot effectively? So the obvious answer to why should we not keep digging ores out of the ground is because it's a finite resource. But actually, I think the more important um, answer is the fact that Quite often when you manufacture using what we call virgin materials, so ores and the like, it's actually a high carbon, a carbon intensive process. So the more important answer is to make sure that we are using a less carbon intensive process. And that is, in most cases, using recycled materials. And actually, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about steel or aluminium or glass or plastic. There is evidence to suggest that using a degree of recycled material if not where you can 100% you are emitting fewer carbon emissions to the atmosphere. There are some challenges to that but on the whole using recycled materials produces lower carbon emissions. And then just one thing that sort of occurs to me is if you are putting things to landfill can you imagine that landfill pile growing and growing and growing you know the other obvious answer is you know, digging it out of the earth and we're running out of a finite source and then you're piling it up somewhere else just because you've used it once. So again, you know, why would you not tap into that resource and prevent that pile just growing? Yeah, I know, I agree. How, how do we make these recycled materials effective now of like from a cost point of view? Because obviously re- waste in general, if you look at a waste, it's very expensive now to get rid of waste of all because mainly because of all these different components if you look at say matches where it's got loads of everything over but then there's a metal shell isn't there all that has to be taken out you look at you look at fridges where there's a gas in there which has to be taken out and you've got loads of different how do we make this a lot of it comes to going people either fly tip to get rid of it because they can't afford to get rid of stuff but then there's an other way from us as a consumer where it becomes very expensive to get to get rid of these and, and unless the once the manufacturers made it, us as the consumers have a responsibility, and that's where this is where it comes to. But if it's expensive to get rid of, this is where we see things where people go to landfill because it's a cheap way of solving a today's problem, isn't it? You will need technology. You will need policy. 
and you will need willingness. So the technology is to improve the separation techniques, but also technology overlaid on the design aspect. If we can design for disassembly and or separation, and we can streamline and reduce cost of actually separating those processes, if you can also yield value, because the one thing that is sorely missing at the moment is recognizing the value. Because people think it's broken, they think it's valueless. And actually, if you could say to somebody, even though it's broken and it can't be used for its current reason, there's still value in that. Driving that value message actually drives behavior. So if actually um, recycling, reusing, remanufacturing, repairing becomes cost effective and actually makes money or at least breaks even, you can start and change behaviors. So you need the research and development to improve the technology, improve the equipment and improve the operational aspects. A, so you get um, a less contaminated, purer raw material. B, so you can de-cost and de-risk the activities. And C, so you can drive that cultural change I think you'll need those three things. And the yeah. fourth one overlaid is the one where I've said policy. Now, if there is a, a policy instruction or a policy, an incentive that comes out of policy, again, it's about driving changes to behaviour. With regard to the, ma- the manufacturers, because we're starting to see it more, I mean, just if we put something that everyone understands, you know, if you go to a fast food place, the likelihood is that they use certain types of recyclable packaging for the foodstuffs which then are put into different bins now people are sometimes lazy enough that they don't even bother and just chuck it all in the waste but at least they're trying to say here's a product you eat part of it and then there's a, a yeah. plastic container or a and, and you can then immediately recycle what you've what you've actually had there so that company and we'll call them mcdonald's <laughs> for argument's sake are looking at it and thinking, well, we're feeding X amount of billion people a day. So we have a responsibility now to be ethical about our recycling processes, which they are trying to do. So manufacturing companies, I, I see at the moment that it's a front end. We sell the product and then it disappears out. And really the recycling part, not our problem. So long as we're selling it and we're growing our business, it's not that we're not bothered. How do we push it back to the manufacturer? realistically because it all comes down to money so i think there'll be two things business models so instead of selling it a manufacturer might go back to that rent or lease business model okay and then secondly you've talked about if you buy this mobile phone use it for a certain length of time we will give you some money if you give it back to us so there's that financial incentive and it will potentially be a change in policy and legislation that actually makes, I'm not a big believer that it should be the user's responsibility or the manufacturer's responsibility. I very much see this as a supply chain and everybody has to have responsibility. So saying manufacturers need to change their um, ethical and moral and, and business practices to support circular economy is only a small piece of the jigsaw. The end users have to think about it as well. So start off with people who design it. Then you've got the people who make it. And there'll be lots of organisations involved in that. 
then you've got the people that sell it and then you've got the people that use it. It genuinely has to become a circular, a circle of responsibility. We're very much linear at the moment. You dig it up, you convert it into something, you use it and you throw it away. It's very linear. Everything has to be that unbroken chain. Do you, I mean, look, you're doing this. Do you really believe that we can make the required steps? It's got, it's got to happen. You know, it gets sometimes, I think, people have to be forced to do something before it happens or it's like literally we're at the point where we've run out of material here so we, we've got to go down that route like with the gas at the moment in russia we've got no gas we're like right we need to start fracking bang let's have a go at that straight away let's open up the coal mines again you know it's it's you make make decisions and it's the wrong time for decisions so at the moment when although we're hearing about it in our sector how do you think we can bring this more to the attention of the ball kickers, the policy makers, because you, you mentioned policy a lot that it almost might need to be forced. Do you genuinely think that this can happen quick enough or do you think we're going to have to almost get to a break point before it really starts being pushed? Just looking for your opinion, there's no like right or wrong. But yeah, just... in my opinion, I think it is happening now. I think there's momentum behind this in all organisations and at all levels. Simply over the past few weeks and months talking to sector organisations, trade bodies and, and one or two organisations within government, there is momentum and there is a willingness. So I believe it is happening and I believe it will continue to happen. And if you just look at society, we were a society that reused and repaired. We've come away from that. I see no reason why we won't go back to it. Can it happen quick enough? I don't know how fast it needs to happen, to be honest. I think it's very subjective and I think that's where the messages are developed to suit individuals' needs. It's happening. There's momentum behind it. I think that's as much as I can really offer. Okay. Okay. Funding. You're obviously looking at doing a plant. We start with a one and you said that that's it's going to be relevant where that's placed. So we'd assume that it would get placed by, say, Tata Steel, Port Talbot. Not necessarily. <laughs> or well, in, in an area where there's probably already a lot of um, scrap metal kind of recycling plants, there's no point sticking it in John O'Groats, is there? Yeah, but that's very steel focused. And remember, the pilot plant wants to look at all materials because okay. if, for instance, we took a washing machine in or a car, once you've shredded it, and separated it, you will have several piles of material. Yeah. So actually, we need to make sure that we're co-located with manufacturing. And would it be one sector versus another? Can't really say at the moment because it yeah. depends. As we've been doing our stakeholder engagement, it depends where the momentum is now. Where is the momentum and which, which of those kind of sectors? So um, all sectors are definitely recycling. From the conversations we've had, you know, all material sectors and all manufacturers are recycling. Steel is obviously very well advanced because it's been recycled for many, many years. So with respect to steel, it's about improving the level of accuracy of that separation and improving the cleanness and the contamination levels. And I can talk about that with a little bit of confidence because of my background. I think what we'll actually need is, as well as being co-located with um, customer and or suppliers, it might just be that we need to be near very good transport links, for instance. It may be that we're linked to a particular research 
cluster organization group because there's other expertise there that manufacturing needs to tap into. Do you think this will be done in tandem with the current recycling companies? Because I'm listening to it at the moment, it's like the pilot plant effectively is almost like a standalone, I guess, to start with. We're doing it because it's it's almost like an R and D project, isn't it? We're gonna get we're gonna get some stuff and we're gonna we're gonna learn. We're gonna look at what's happening, we're gonna find out all the pinch points and pain points, and then we're gonna go, right, based on this and what we've learned, this is kind of what we need to do. Again, my thoughts would then be okay, we start building smaller recycling plants all over the country so that you can do this in specific areas and you're not having to move it all the way around because of transport costs and things like that and piling it high. But we've already got an infrastructure in place for recycling. So do you think that it will then, we'll have to then work with the current recycling companies to kind of push this? Are they they okay with it? Is there any pushback from them? So just to be clear, we don't want to build a recycling business or empire we don't actually aspire to be recyclers in the same sense as the current recycling industry what we aspire to do is provide a research and development facility so that different organizations can access that facility whether it be accessing the equipment the expertise the knowledge or the materials that we produce we will produce raw materials but it'll be small volume there's no way that we can compete with the big manufacturers and actually that's not what we want to do because we want to generate knowledge and learning and we want to further science and technology we don't want to be another recycler and yes it is in parallel and you know there um that facility the facility could be there for them to use if they want okay yeah no that's 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 all i wanted to know about that particularly now um Again, Richard mentioned in detail about, I mean, he's very passionate, you know, Richard. I do. Um, And he's looking and saying with what's happening with Brexit and as being the most advanced industrial nation in the world, that it gives us huge advantages if we can start harvesting or reharvesting our material because we've got so much scrap. What are your thoughts on... UK manufacturing more widely and the prospects for UK steel more widely. It doesn't necessarily have to be about recycling, just how, how are you thinking about the industry at the moment? So if we stick with raw materials, I think that this is absolutely the right thing to do because we need to, as a nation, have um, security of raw materials. You know, As an, uh, a nation, we need security of lots of different things and raw materials is part of that. In terms of UK steel, there's a lot of knowledge and experience and established steel makers that work globally. Because we've worked globally, that steel industry hasn't just worked within the boundaries of the European Commission, the European Union. And yes, the way we operate with Europe has changed because of Brexit, but our steel industry didn't just work with Europe. Our steel industry supplied and does supply steel globally. So Brexit is something that needs to be managed and the um, commercial and the um, operational activities have been disrupted because of it. But a lot of our steel makers supply to America and to um, Asia and far reaches of the world. So I think there is um, a future for the steel industry because we weren't just supplying into Europe, we were always supplying elsewhere. 
Do we need to invest in um, the plant, in the capex? Yes, you always do. You need to move forward. I think my biggest nervousness is around skills, training and development, because I think that's potentially where we've just dropped the ball a little bit. But there's a huge amount of resources going into STEM. Um, There are some fantastic universities with very, very um, relevant degrees. I think we need to get rid of this. It's a steel industry, it's dirty, it's not. And I also think we need to get away from this. It's a steel industry, it's in decline, people are leaving. Actually, because of the technical technological advances, the numbers of people you've need have just reduced over time. And people think that, oh, another reorganisation, people leaving the steel industry. Yes, but do you actually recognise how much technology has gone into that steel industry to make sure that it's still cutting edge? So for me, I think there is the opportunity to um, operate in a a global environment. I think that the skills and the expertise are there. We just need to make sure we don't drop the ball and we're bringing the new blood in. This podcast is sponsored by Anglo Stainless. Anglo Stainless are a stockholder of pipe fittings and flanges based in the UK. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Anglo Stainless for... Well, for many years, actually, uh, I've experienced the quality of their materials and service firsthand with um, thousands of items in stock from low pressure BSP all the way through to high pressure forge fittings, as well as butt weld, hygienic gaskets, pipes, valves and flanges to suit. They're a great place to find the products you need all in one place. They've got a really experienced team supplying products across the UK and also overseas. But for more details, check out the podcast show notes or give them a call. Uh, they can well recommend it from me and would be a great addition to anyone's supplier network. Order with confidence from the team at Anglo Stainless. But now, let's get back to the podcast. Talk a little bit more about STEM. Just, you know, again, your, your viewpoint, because we're talking about training there. And, you know, do, do you think we're in a good position? You're saying we're dropping the ball a little bit, but... I think where STEM's concerned, I mean, I'm not personally involved in those activities, but I am fully aware of them. And I think we have got a very strong drive to make sure that our future generations are interested in science, technology, maths and engineering. And as I've said, I think that the universities are still providing us with very relevant degrees and the graduates that come out there's a range of graduates there are graduates that are very interested in the theory and the academic side of things and make fantastic researchers but we're also getting some graduates that come out that want to be hands-on and doing the the doing the engineering the manufacturing and selling so I think that the foundations are there I just think the steel industry needs to make sure it's tapping into that resource now and developing those people they just don't attract the people now do we as an industry i look at it as compared to what we see from a manufacturer's point of view the way they attract graduates is in a lot more of an appealing way than the steel industry it's a lot reserved sits back it sees it's not it's not the first choice and it's really it's an industry like you say with global you know, presence, it should be. But I think there's this, the way we see it from a recruitment point of view, it's it's very old fashioned approach. We want people coming in with these skill sets. We want this, we want that. And really every year we should be looking at and going, how do we attract the best graduates and ensure that we're at least an option and not an afterthought 
because every time we speak to people at all levels, including ourselves, it's an industry you fall in. It's not an industry you've put to the front of your mind, you know, and there's every person that we speak to and you ask them to, it's always that, but I kind of fell into it really. But I think we need to get into universities, something that we've, we've been doing, mm. but it's, you need people at the big manufacturers to have a push on it and not just from a, an apprenticeship level because apprenticeship levels we use, but again, it's still, it's not, it's not seen as a sexy industry, is it no. really? I think, I think you're right. I think that that does need to change, but that's just a kind of cultural shift again, isn't it? For the businesses to be a little bit more. But then it's, you say it's not sexy, but then people, once you're in it, you stay in oh, it. Yeah, yeah, people like so it. So there's got to be something about it, hasn't it? You know, I, I just don't think we, the industry gets sold like of the benefits you think of people. Well, look at your career, for yeah, example. How did, how did you drop into it to start with? Fell into it, didn't you? I fell into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I'm a bit of a strange mix because my um, A-levels were biology, geography and sociology. Yeah. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with myself, you know, classic teenager. So I applied for jobs that included continuous or further education, so day release, and British Steel offered me a job. Day release. Sounds like you've been in clink. (laughs) (laughs) And it's still called day release, (laughs) at least by the old school. And um, I was put on the um, ordinary national certificate, would now be called a BTEC for um, metals technology. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. It's chemistry, physics and maths, but no, I can do this. And you're right, I just kept going all the way through my career and and I was lucky that I joined a firm that was really bought into training and development. And I think one of the things that people maybe don't understand is there's still that opportunity for training and development within the steel industry, but there's a lot more emphasis put on the individual to drive their own training and development now. Whereas when I joined, it was very structured and very set up and you dropped off at a point that was appropriate for you. Having said that, there was still the opportunity to engage if you wanted to. It's very different now. It's, I think individuals are expected to drive their own career. Yeah. So potentially there could be something around that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's one thing that we learned from doing these podcasts, really. The amount of people who take themselves away to develop themselves more than... Well, the people that have made it or are going up the tree, they're all the ones that have put the extra effort in, haven't they, really? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think companies haven't trained people because of retention. Not predominantly, I'd imagine, is one of the things. It's such a cost and people feel that once you've train someone and develop them that you then lose them to companies who come along and grab them it just stopped companies from actually doing it you know and my own personal experience is yes there is a little bit of that as an employer if you've put some time and effort into developing somebody you do want to see some payback but if the way things are going at the moment is that people are going to be quite singular in their thinking then companies have to become very good at making sure they get that benefit quickly. And actually, the way I look at it, and it's a very simplistic view, and I don't really know how it would um, play out in reality, but if somebody comes into an organisation, gets two, three, four, five years of training and doesn't stay very long, okay, that's a disappointment. But why then isn't the company recruiting somebody who's done that somewhere else? So if you have got 
individuals going into organizations for a very short period of time and then moving out, then each organization needs to make sure they're recruiting people that have been through that process. So if you train somebody up and they leave, it's okay to recruit somebody at the beginning of that process and can train them up. But why not also consider recruiting somebody that's already been through that process? So I think it's about finding a recruitment process that works for you. And my personal view is you don't want one type of person. You don't want all apprentices, all graduates, all experienced people you want to mix. But that's just my personal view. And I do know within organisations, you tend to find that organisations lean towards one group and then, oh, actually we need to lean towards that group. And and it's whatever you need at any one time, I suppose. I think people just want the perfect, you know, it's almost like the kids' Christmas list. They want they want all twenty things, and it's becoming that's where we've got this kind of talent shortage because everyone's been having that model of going, I'll recruit that person with that skill, that skill, that skill, and no one's taken the ownership within an organisation to train upwards, and that becomes sometimes because you're getting end of years now with budgets, and there isn't a training budget, there isn't there isn't that kind of level. But what I think would be quite an interesting way, especially when people now have a more of a thinking of going, actually, I'll take myself away from work at an evening and educate myself, that actually there's an, companies can get a very good rate on training, but actually that can be sacrificed for a salary sacrifice mm-hmm. where the, the yeah, employee or the individual can take a benefit of that. And that way, if it's a free-year course, obviously you then you're in there. The employer gets the gets the buy-in. The training hasn't come; it's just been done for a salary sacrifice way. But then it doesn't fit in that way. So if you do come through that model, at least you've almost like well, if this person's then could join us, prepared to do this course, you're almost you've got yeah, your retention for longer potentially. But I don't know how that would how that would work, but. We asked you at the end of the last podcast and you just avoided the question. No, that's not like me. Totally avoided it. About um, your biggest mistake in your career to date. And I can't remember what you said. Can't remember what you said, but I just remember you being like, just like a politician, you just slid off. It's like Teflon. (laughs) So in my opinion, what's the biggest mistake in my career to date? Correct. Okay. I had a short period as a quality manager in uh, one of our rolling mills and it felt like a sink or swim situation. So I don't know whether it was the biggest mistake of my career, but it's the part of my career where I probably benefited the least and the people around me benefited the least. And I learned a lot from it. It's one of those strange situations that it was two years that I really didn't enjoy. And I'm sure that the people around me didn't really get much out of it either. But it meant that when I moved into other roles, I knew how not to do it and what worked for me and what didn't work for me. So at the time, it felt like a huge mistake. It really did. But then when you're five years down the line, you look back on it. And actually, I learned a lot about me and the people around me and how they operate so I suppose I might be swerving the question again but the message (laughs) that I would like to say is actually the reason I'm swerving the the question is because I don't think there are any huge mistakes 
Don't look back and think that was a mistake and that was a mistake and that was a mistake. Look back at it and say, that didn't work because, and I'm not doing it like that again, and that didn't work because, and I shan't do that again. That really works well. I'm doing that again. And I think what you're doing is you're forcing me to think about, I have this conversation with people that are either working for me or working with me who are less experienced in their career. And I regularly say to people, you might have to try something that you're not really bought into and you need to do that to confirm actually whether it's for you, yes or no. You can't just expect to get what you want in life. You can't just expect for it always to work. And there are times where you think, I am going to make a big mistake if I do this, or you look back at it and think, I have made a big mistake, but you haven't. It's just fact of life. So when I look back on my time in, in the rolling mill, it felt awful. And at the time, I really didn't like it. And at the time, I felt like I was making a mistake. But it taught me so much going forwards that I benefited from that. So have I made any mistakes in my career? I don't know whether I've made any mistakes. I've done things well and I've done things not very well. And that's how I look on it. And that's why I can't answer your question. I just oh. refuse to think that. <laughs> wasted two years yeah. of my life. I didn't. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask was, obviously, you're on a contract at the moment. Um, and that's something that we're starting to do of where we get offered for organisations from a from a personal point of view obviously a lot of people see that as quite a daunting thing to do it's great if you're not in work you know so coming out of covid there was a lot of done but it, it benefited the candidate as well as the employer so that was that's quite easy but for people who may have contracts coming up it might be overseas it might be in the uk where they see it as a short term 12 months because 12 months don't have to go quick <laughs> what advice would you give people about making that move from a fixed employment to a contract and what benefits have you seen of doing that? I can tell you how, how I did it. Um, I've done it at a point in my career where I felt that it was less risky. So I've got knowledge and experience behind me that I feel I can draw on. And I actually also put some financial reserves down so that if there was a break in work, I felt that I'd got something to tide myself over. I'm the sort of person that I like to have a safety net. So I got my financial safety net, but I've also got an alternative sort of little um, interest, which can again tide me over financially and also keep me busy. So my advice to somebody is if you feel that you're going to do something that's a bit risky for you and a bit frightening for you, think about a safety net and think about fallback positions because that really helped me do it. I'd got a financial safety net and I'd got a sort of a social safety net. You know, if you're not working every day and you're used to working every day and you were struggling to find work, what were you going to do to keep yourself busy to make sure that you didn't worry about it? So I'd got those safety nets. And the other piece of advice is think about when in your life it's more appropriate to do it. Sometimes that's taken out of your hands. Sometimes it's never going to be the right time, but sometimes you can engineer it at a point where it's safer to do it for you. So I've done it towards the middle, towards the end of my career. You know, I've got 30 years behind me, so I felt I got the knowledge and experience to fall back on. But I'm also at a point where maybe I'm more financially stable than I would have been 10, 20, definitely 30 years ago. So that de-risked it. So safety nets, fallback positions, de-risk. 
And if you can control when you do it, that bit's a, a little less out of your control. Brilliant. Nice thanks very much. Well, thank well, you for doing it. Yeah, thanks for joining us a second time. No Two worries. <laughs> Our first returning guest. <laughs> Our second returning guest. <laughs> well, we had Carl, didn't we, back? He's done two pods, though. Oh, yeah, you pressed record twice there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I did that one twice. Yeah. 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 No, it was great. No, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you. So that's the end of the season. It's the end. What do you think of season two? What, are you, what have been... I know we recorded it over a bit of a period of time so we could get them out weekly, but any takeaways, anything that yeah, you've enjoyed? I mean, or Yeah, I mean, for me, it's kind of learning about where the industry's wanting to go. A lot of people talking about platforms. You obviously had Fractory, we've had... Um, Steel Scout. Steel Scout. Uh, for when we've obviously just done this one with Ice, with Ice Space. Yeah. Um, so it's about where the industry wants to go, the future of where it's going to end up being. And I think you know, we've had a lot of conversation, discussions about people who want to, for the industry to change for the better, whether that's with your um, chaos source of you know what they're trying to do with social presence, whether that's done through people having like e-commerce platforms. It's all for the better. Um, and like a lot of these things, you know, like the Metal Magazine that we've done this year, it comes down to. If it's time, it's the right time for the industry to take it. I think all of these are positive things the way the industry's moving forward. But equally, the industry, the, the you know, the thought leaders, the people who can make it happen need to need to accept it. Yeah, step it. Up if, that. if not, it just it they just unfortunately go and the longer people see things not working, then their preperception is that won't work before they even listen to a new idea again. And that's how they fail because it's people don't accept the change. Mm. Yeah, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this season. I think our first when we first did the podcast, obviously we just started it because we thought it was a good idea, but not much more than that. And it's kind of grown and we've seen significant growth with it. We've seen a lot of people, a lot of people talking to us now who are listening and have listened to a lot of the podcasts and are really bought into what we're trying to do, which is nice. A lot of the time they don't comment, <laughs> but they'll ring us up directly or message us directly. Um, and I think that's been the key takeaway for me that we've kind of changed. First season was more about people and how their careers have developed and the stories within the sector. And I think the second season, obviously the idea or the title of the podcast is the Metal Guys Talk Business. I feel like we have talked more business this season and I see that that will grow. Um, I want to do a podcast next year about an MBO. I want to talk about you know getting, getting a company in who've had an MBO and how that kind of happened. I know you wanted to, to kind of hit a few topics as well. Yeah, it'd be nice to get someone who's either sold a business and enjoy enjoying retirement, or someone who sold a <laughs> yeah. business, um, and they just couldn't feel like they had the cash to make push it to where they wanted to be, and a buyout was the best option for them. Mm. I also so, want to talk to someone who's failed. Yeah, yeah in a business. Yeah, yeah that's me. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, do one on you then, Pete. Uh, and then, or just someone who's brought a business, and then having to try and integrate that into a group, and maybe that business they've brought is either the perfect fit and it makes them stronger in that particular industry sector. Or maybe it's a bit left field and they're like, well, actually, we brought this because this was what we was thinking. But then how they integrate as a group. You know, there's a, there's a lot of groups in our kind of industry sector, but I imagine each acquisition has its own, its own pains, doesn't it? About, you know, computer systems, logistical things, 
accounts, there might be crossovers, all these type of things of getting them discussed would be would obviously be interesting. But I mean, how do you see how often would you like to do a season? Well, I mean, ideally, I'd like to record a podcast every week, but I think with running a business and how busy the servers are just doing our business, I think it's very unlikely that that would happen for the foreseeable future. But, you know, the plan is we're, we're moving offices now. We're looking to build um, a, like a specific recording space where we can record the podcasts. Um, and we've got ideas to potentially do live podcasts as well as live video streams. When I say live, we, I think to start with, we probably won't push them out live, so we don't make uh, you know make fools of ourselves by making mistakes. But the plan is to to grow what we're doing. Um, and yeah, I think the more of them we can do, the better. What, what's been interesting is you never get huge, huge downloads on podcasts. You know, we get thousands of downloads on our podcast. But realistically, we can push a piece of content and get tens of thousands of views on something that's taken us two minutes to record. So for the amount of effort that you put in, the numbers don't always stack up. But what we are seeing is because of these short clips that we've been doing for the podcast, there's a lot more demand for them. You know, And some of those hit tens of thousands of views very quickly. So I think if we can do more of the podcast, it would only benefit us and our business. Um, but I also think just gives people a platform to talk about the stuff that's going on in the industry. So to answer your question really long-windedly, I'd like to do more of them. Um, I'd like to do them more frequently, but I think realistically, we're probably only going to be able to do 10 a year. I think that's about as much as we can do currently. Perfect. Anyway, see you for season three. Yeah, well, look, thanks to the sponsors. We've had three sponsors this year. We've had Anglo Stainless, UK Metal Expo, and Amaran Architectural, so thank you for those. Pete, obviously, you're looking to get other sponsors for season three. Correct, yeah. Yeah, we've got a few people that we're talking to, but yeah, if you're interested, yeah, let us know, drop us a message, and we've probably got some different opportunities for season three. But yeah, get in contact with us. Hope you've enjoyed the, the podcasts. That's it for uh, for this season. Take a like. Take a like. Yeah, give it a like. Give, give it a like, it a, yeah. Give it a review, yeah, maybe. Yeah, give it a review, yeah. Yeah, reviews help, actually. Could do with more reviews on Apple. So if you've enjoyed the pod... And you have an Apple device. Could you give us a review, please? Yeah, only if it's positive. <laughs> Don't need any negativity in the world. <laughs> <laughs>